the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. When he exhorts us this way, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So just, you know, ask yourself, as a Christian, I may have confessed Christ with my lips because that's how you come to faith. That's how you are a believer. Uh, But are you confessing him with your life? Are you living your life in such a way that people take note that you are a reflection of Christ? by the way that you live. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. Does the way that you live your life bear witness to Christ? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you to not only confess that Jesus is Lord with your lips, but to confess him as Lord with your life. Pastor Gary encourages you to live your life in such a way that shows evidence to Christ within you. You are a representative of Jesus to everyone that you meet. By your witness, others might come to know him and be saved. Shine your light and reflect the love of Jesus by how you live. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 with me. Hebrews chapter 3. While you're turning there, just a a brief reminder, the book of Hebrews written by someone we don't know because the author is unnamed, but nevertheless inspired by the Lord. So whether it was Paul or Barnabas or a lot of other theories who might have written Hebrews, it doesn't matter. It was all inspired by the Lord. We do know that it had to have been written sometime before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by Titus Vespasian because the writer of Hebrews writes as if the temple is still standing, and he's writing to an audience who would understand about temple practices and temple sacrifices. So that's why this letter is dated pre-70 AD. The recipients of the letter we also know, and that is that these are Hebrews, Christians, Jews who are believers in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is going to challenge these Jewish believers to not revert to legalism and not to get lazy in their faith. But the writer of Hebrews has to cut through a lot of the historical and traditional aspects of their faith in order to get them to sound biblical truth. And it is true for any of us, if you've grown up in the church, there are certain things that you may have learned kind of historically or traditionally based on whatever your upbringing might have been in the church, if you have one. And some of those things might be accurate, some of those things not so accurate. 
And so we have to kind of parse through those things. My tradition growing up practiced, for example, infant baptism. But then when I looked into scripture and realized, you know, it really water baptism is reserved for people who make a profession of faith in Christ, I don't think when I was six months old I could do that. So then later, right before I got married, I was baptized at a, in, a, in, a, in a fishing hole up on the other side of Thurmont, Maryland, uh, by my uncle who was pastoring at the time, because I realized though my tradition said I was good to go, the Bible kind of taught me otherwise. And so if you've grown up in the church, you might have to kind of parse through some of that too and, and be thankful for your heritage, be thankful for what you might have learned and gleaned along the ways, but you gotta, you got to measure it according to what Scripture teaches. And so the writer of Hebrews is speaking to Jewish people who were, were very dependent upon a system. The whole sacrificial system had been you know, practiced for centuries. The way to God is the sacrifice of an animal. Now the whole concept that Jesus is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world, and he has fulfilled and replaced the sacrifice of animals, I mean, that was a whole staggering concept to the Jewish people. Even though they put their faith and trust in Christ, to go away from what they've been traditionally doing for centuries was a, a challenge for them. And there were other challenges also related to the dietary aspects of the law and certain customs and rituals that, you mean we don't have to do these anymore? No, because those things were pointing to Christ, all been fulfilled in Christ. It's about Christ and faith in Christ and Christ alone. So they, they had to kind of be pried loose from some of their own historical and traditional leanings in order to really embrace sound biblical truth. And so uh, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews is going to do is talk about how uh, key words in the book of Hebrews, how better mentioned 11 times, superior four times, greater seven times throughout the book of Hebrews. And all of these things are in reference to Jesus, that Jesus is better, superior, and greater than. And the writer of Hebrews is going to make this argument throughout the whole book, different things and different people that Jesus is greater than, better than, or superior to. And in chapter one, we talked about how he's greater than the prophets. Uh, it, the writer of Hebrews opens up chapter 1, verse 1, talking about in times past, God spoke to us through the prophets at various times and in diverse manners. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, through whom he made all things. And then he goes in the next verse and he says, and the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, okay, God spoke to us through the prophets. That's wonderful. We, we don't despise the prophets. We don't disparage the prophets. Prophets are good. Jesus is better. Because God spoke through the prophets, true, but then God spoke through his son who is God. So do you want someone to speak on behalf of God or do you want God to speak? And so he's better than the prophets because the, he's the exact representation of his being. The prophets were only just the vessels through whom God worked. And then he's also going to make the argument in chapters 1 and a little bit into chapter 2 that Jesus is better, greater than the angels. No angel worship here. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is superior to angels. Don't worship angels. Don't elevate angels. Angels are good. Angels are mentioned more than 300 times in the Bible. They're powerful beings that God has created. But they are not to be revered. They're not to be venerated. They, they are not to be worshiped. They are to be understood as creatures that God has created, but inferior to Jesus. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, angelic kind of worship going on in our world today. There's a lot of angelic comparisons. There's a lot of false religions that are based on angelic kinds of representations and angelic things that they have said. So 
listen, Jesus is superior to the angels. And then what he's going to say here in chapter 3 is that Jesus is superior to Moses. Now this, again, you got to hear this through Jewish ears because, you know, Moses is a revered and respected prophet among the Jewish people. Again, as I said in the opening of the book of Hebrews a few weeks ago, none of these things are bad. Jesus is just better. So he's not saying that Moses is bad or the angels are bad or the prophets are bad. Again, as I, as I said a few weeks ago, it's, is vanilla ice cream good? Chunky monkey better, right? And if you've never had chunky monkey, you, you're, you're missing out. Let me just tell you something right now. All right, I digress. Anyway, that's the concept. He's like, these things aren't bad, but there's something better. And so don't ever settle for anything less than always worship Jesus, exalt Jesus, magnify Jesus, live for Jesus, follow Jesus, be sold out for Jesus. That's what it's all about. And that's the way chapter 3 begins here, by the way. Look in your Bibles here at chapter 3 now. He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So in the NIV that I'm reading from here, he talks about fixing your thoughts on Jesus. If you have a New King James or ESV, it just uses the word consider and consider Jesus. I like NIV here where it fix your, your thoughts. It's a stronger way of communicating the word in the Greek rather than just consider. You know, I Consider, it sounds a little weak, but fix your thoughts. That sounds stronger, doesn't it? The Greek word used here is one, one word. It's katanoeo. And katanoeo in the Greek is from two words. Noeo means to exercise the mind. And the prefix kata in the Greek is the intensity of the word. So you can have just noeo. It means exercise the mind. Think about things. But katanoeo is the intensity. Like don't just, don't just think about it in this, in this passing moment, but fix your thoughts and really just grab hold of the whole idea of who Jesus is, how much he loves you, that he died for you. Fix your thoughts. It's, it's a stronger word than just consider. It's okay, but I just think I appreciate the language here better for, for the Greek word katanoeo. Just, just consider an intense focus on Jesus in your thoughts. Our thoughts are wicked. Our thoughts betray us. Uh, our thoughts need to be reined in. We need to master our thoughts. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians ten five, we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Aren't, aren't you glad that your thoughts can't be heard out loud? How embarrassed would we be if our thoughts were heard out loud? Now, some of you have a terrible habit of saying out loud what you're thinking. Don't do that. Learn, learn not to just say what you're thinking. There, there needs to be a filter. Please filter. We don't want to hear what you're thinking sometimes. But anyway, that's why we have to take captive every thought. So we need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And, and then the writer here uses some interesting language. He calls Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So, you know, the word apostle typically used to describe the 12 that Jesus selected. But Apostles, just from a Greek word, apostello, meaning one who is sent out, one who is sent forth. And so Jesus, in that sense, was sent forth from the Father. So he just uses that word loosely, one who was sent forth. Jesus sent forth from the Father. And he's also serving like the high priest. In those days, you could not get to God directly. You had to go through the high priest. And the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice 
behind the veil of the curtain in the temple, and just the high priest and the high priest alone would make atonement for, for the sins of the people. They would even tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest in case he died in the presence of the Lord behind the curtain. You couldn't go in after him. So you, they'd pull him out with a rope. That's what they would do. So it was a very high calling to be the high priest, and God arranged for, for the high priest to be a part of the sacrificial system because the high priest was to represent God to man and man to God and stand as an intermediary. The writer of Hebrews is going to spend a few chapters later, chapters 8, 9, and 10, talking about how Jesus is better than any earthly high priest and how he has fulfilled the high priest. There is no longer any earthly high priest, despite what some people might refer to themselves as. There is no high priest. There's not even a priestly service, with all due respect to our Catholic friends. The priesthood has been replaced and fulfilled in Christ alone. He is the only sufficient, able, pure intermediary between God and man. You no longer have to go through a person. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, the Son. So he is the apostle and high priest of our faith. He is the one who has paid the price in full. He stands in the gap, represents the Father to us, us to the Father. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. That's why the writer uses this language here to describe him. And he ends verse 1 by saying, whom we confess, whom we confess. Now, make a note in the margin of your Bible. There's two ways that we confess Jesus. Number one is with our mouth. Number two is with our lives. When you come to faith in Christ, you confess. This is Romans 10, 9 and 10, that, you know, if, if we confess with our mouths that he is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it is with your mouth that you confess uh, and are justified with your heart that you believe and are saved. And so there's a confession of our mouth in declaring our faith in Jesus Christ. But then there's also a confession of our lives. There's a confession of our lives where we also bear testimony to who Christ is in our lives by the way that we live. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16, he said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify my Father which is in heaven. There, there's the confession of our, of our lips and the confession of our lives. Peter would write something similar in 1 Peter 2.12 when he exhorts us this way, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So just you know, ask yourself, hey, as a Christian, I may have confessed Christ with my lips because that's how you come to faith. That's how you are a believer. Uh, but are you confessing him with your life? Are you living your life in such a way that people take note that you are a reflection of Christ by the way that you live? Verse 2 says, He was faithful to the one who appointed him. And now here comes the comparison to Moses. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor. See, here's the word greater. Greater honor. Then Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Now, he's, he's just making some comparison here. He's using an analogy. The first analogy he uses, with all due respect to Moses, he's saying, listen, Jesus is creator. Moses is just created. So who, who is greater, the builder or that which has been built? So he says, you know, listen, Jesus is greater because he's, he's creator. Moses is just what has been created. He, Jesus is the builder. Moses is just the house in that sense. 
In verse 4, the writer goes on to say, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant, circle that word, in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, which is true. Moses himself was a prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said that, that God would select a prophet. Moses said, one will be appointed. God will select a prophet like me from his, among his own people. And so even Moses knew that there would be a day when Messiah would come and God would select even from among his own people. In other words, God would take on flesh and he would be like us. And, and so Moses was faithful as a servant in, the house, in God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son, circle that word, over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage in the hope of which we boast. So the writer's saying here that the caution to the Hebrew believers at the time was you're elevating the servant above the son. And in any typical ancient household, you have a servant who, who works in the home, but the son has higher status. So that's the way he's comparing Moses to help them understand. He's like, you know, Moses, Moses is like the house, but Jesus is the builder. And who is greater, the builder or, or what was built? And Moses is a good servant. He's faithful to God. But Jesus is the son. And who has greater status, a son in a family or a servant? And so he's making that comparison to help them understand. Moses is good, but Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. And so then he draws on their own history by this next section here. In my Bible, it's subtitled, Warning Against Unbelief. And so in verse 7, he says, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, some of your Bibles might point this out, but right now, the writer of Hebrews, the reason it's indented in your Bibles is because he's quoting from Psalm chapter 95. Right here between verses 7 through 11, he's quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he's drawing on their own history about a time when the Jewish people were unfaithful to the Lord. And this whole part here about this time of testing in the desert, the time when your fathers tested and tried me, he's referring to that time when God led the Hebrew slaves out of slavery from Egypt on their way to the promised land, a journey that should have taken 13 days on foot, ended up taking 40 years. Why? Because there was a generation that was rebellious against God. And so God, because of their rebellion, said, this generation shall not enter. You're not going to enter the promised land, and I'm just going to let all of y'all die in the wilderness over the next 40 years, and I'll take your kids in. And that's what happens. So he starts out here, back up to verse 7, where he says, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today, notice the urgency, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is the message of chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4. He's going to use the word harden three times here in chapter 3. He's going to use the word one more time in chapter 4. His warning, the writer of Hebrews is drawing on their own Old Testament history by saying to them, learn from your forefathers. They hardened their hearts against God. We're going to talk about why in a moment. And his warning is, don't you do that. 
don't harden your hearts against the Lord. Now, it's interesting. He's, he's giving them a couple of exhortations. In chapter 2, the exhortation was, don't drift away. That's the way chapter 2, verse 1 began. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So we talked about that last time. Now he's going to say to them, here's another problem that can attack Christians. You can become hardened in your hearts. You can become disappointed and frustrated with God. Don't let that happen. Because a lot of people get frustrated with God. They get angry with God. Uh, God doesn't do what they hoped that he would do. God didn't prevent what they hoped he would have prevented. God didn't answer on time the way they wanted him to answer. And we evaluate God through a very narrow lens. And the narrow lens is self. And if God doesn't perform or show up or do what I hope or ask or pray or plead, then sometimes it tends to cause people to become angry and bitter at God and hardened towards him. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. You know, we have to always maintain a big picture of God to the best that we can. And in God's sovereignty and in his majesty and in his magnificence, he's up to stuff always for our good, but things at the moment we cannot necessarily see and understand. And friends, when God doesn't always show up or answer prayers or do what you think you, that he should or wish or hope that he would, it's in those moments we just have to fall back on our faith and trust that Scripture is true, that God is good and he has my best interest at heart, even when he's not doing things the way I think he should. I mean, how silly is it sometimes when we say those kind of things, even if we don't verbalize it, and we think to ourselves, you know, why doesn't God do it this way? And why did he wait? And why doesn't he? And why did it? Almost like we would do it better. I mean, think about it. And, and the analysis at the end of the day, that's what we're basically saying. If God would have then this will be better. Do you remember when Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus? His friend, one of his closest friends, and he's greeted by the sisters, Mary and Martha. And the first sister comes up to him and and says to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, a lot of people read that and think that she's actually just kind of praising Jesus. Like, I know that if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. You would have done something great. I tend to read it through a sassy tone. And one day I might have to apologize to, to both sisters, but I, 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 I think she basically was, was chewing him out because the Bible says that when Jesus got word that his friend was sick and near death, he tarried where he was three more days. When you, when you factor that in, and then you realize that he, he just stayed where he was three more days. I hear that Lazarus is dying, but I'm just going to stay where I am for three more days. So that by the time he shows up, he's four days late. So I don't think for a moment, you know, Martha's thinking, if, if you'd have been here, oh, things would have just been wonderful. It just would have been special. I think she's thinking, what took you so long? What took you so long? And, and, and Jesus, you know, he's so, he's so patient. But it does say that, that he's, he snorts with anger. I mean, he's frustrated at the scene because of the lack of unbelief. And of course, many of you know the story that at the end of the day, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And I ask you, what's a greater miracle? That Jesus had shown up four days earlier and prevented a sick man from dying or raising a man from the dead? What's a greater miracle? Raising a man from the dead. Sure it was. So God's delay is often for his display because God knows that there's going to be a greater revelation of his glory even though on our timetable we think he's late. So the writer of Hebrews is like, whatever the reason might be, that you're disappointed in God, please don't let it cause you to become hardened in your heart. Don't become hardened in your heart. 
The book of Hebrews challenges all believers of Jesus to continue to embrace Him as the only hope of salvation. Too often we can find ourselves trying to keep up our faith by adding traditions back in. No one is saved because of Jesus and something else. It's only Jesus. There's still nothing you or anyone else can do to ensure forgiveness of sin. Jesus took care of it once and for all. And through faith in that fact, you can begin to grow and flourish in God's plan for you, falling more in love with your Savior every day. We're honored you spent time with us here today studying the book of Hebrews on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to more editions of Pastor Gary Hamrick's teachings in Hebrews, you can do so by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or if you're someone frequently on the go, download our mobile app to take these messages along for the ride. What a great way to keep God's Word close at hand, no matter where this life takes you. We'd love to meet you too. So if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary will lead us in another study of the Bible, and we always include time for worship and fellowship. You'll find service times, directions, and all the additional information you need at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today for Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know 